It's only entertainment. Welcome back to the Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Welcome back to the Green Rush, the business of cannabis. As we mentioned before, it's a two-hour weekly live cannabis business talk show produced by Pro Cannabis Media, broadcast every Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard. This show discusses news issues in the cannabis market, and each week we conduct a deep dive into specific topics of the industry. I'd like to thank all of our viewers on our PCM YouTube channel for those watching on ProCannabisMedia.com and all the different ways you can absorb our content. Earlier in the show, we had Morgan Fox, political director from the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws on. We just finished an interesting interview with Alex Halperin, who is the editor and publisher of Weed Week. And now we have an even more interesting interview, I'm pretty sure. Jacques Santucci and Connor Yost, both from Opus Consulting, have joined us. Plus, a Green Rush veteran, David Rabinovitz, is here too. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Good to be with you, Bert. Thank you. Connor, Jock, if you'd like to uh, explain a little bit about Opus, we'd love to hear that. Yeah, sure. Um, so Opus is a, so it's a management consulting firm. We've been in the industry for probably eight or nine years now, uh, based out of Portland, Maine, and, um, you know, really a national presence in the cannabis industry. Um, we kind of are now uh, seeing, you know, New York and the tri-state area as, you know, clearly an emerging market. So that's something that we try to uh, provide the uh, the readers of our uh, our uh, industry report with, you know, a decent amount of intel and that type of thing, um, which is kind of, you know, something that uh, we've been offering, which I think Jimmy saw, which is why we're, we're on here today. But basically, Opus uh, is a company that helps uh, startups and emerging companies with business planning, financial modeling, licensing, and uh, kind of executing, executing upon operations. Yeah, well, that sounds and, like uh, covered the whole whole spectrum there. Jacques, go yes. ahead. Yeah, no, and our experience comes from the fact that Connor and myself have been uh, operator in the cannabis industry. You know, in my case, you know, over ten years ago, and Connor uh, a little bit less. And um, and both of us have that experience and uh, match with our experience of uh, professional service uh, experts and uh, and business experts. You know, we we offering all those services to the cannabis industry, like Connor said, for eight, seven, eight years now. You're joined by Josh Kincaid and myself, Rick Thompson. Josh is in Washington State. I'm in Michigan. And David, you're on the East Coast. Isn't that true? I, I am just uh, with out of the Boston area, just below Connor and Jocks. Yep. Well, you're familiar with this issue. Why don't you go ahead and, and ask a, an important question about something we'd like to know about Connor and Jacques' situation? Well, so why don't we, the, 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 you mean their practice or what's going on in New York? I'm giving it up to you, big guy. You decide. Okay, okay great. So <laughs> tell, us, tell us about what you're, how is the New York market developing for you in, the, as an, in an advisory role? Um, where are you starting to see activity taking place? And what are the challenges that you're seeing the licensees are bumping into? So what I'm seeing is that um, it's, you know, obviously without, uh, you know, going towards vertical integration, you know, it's a lot of uh, kind of smaller mom and pop type of uh, companies that are, you know, going through the very early stage of business planning, um, starting to talk to municipalities, um, starting to kind of build that plan. And the one thing that people are running into is that 
you know, they try to, they want to find a location now, they want to get things started, they go talk to, you know, a town or a city who has absolutely, you know, no idea what they're talking about, right? So the number one thing that I think people are running into is like, how do we educate, you know, a, a zoning board or a planning board or a, or a city council or someone like that, you know, to accept them into the town and, you know, so that they can start finding, you know, real estate and making things happen. It seems to be, seems to be a bit of a challenge because you've got, uh, you know, these, entrepreneurs who are, you know, hypersensitive to everything, you know, in the industry that's going on. And then you've got, uh, you know, cities and towns who really are at a, you know, significantly different level and need to be educated by them so they can even move forward at all. And I think we, we started to talk to people in, uh, about New York sometime in 2020. I think our first client was early 2021. I think I've done my first presentation to a town uh, like almost a year ago, I think it was late April or early May 2021, uh, somewhere uh, near the Finger Lakes there. And uh, since then, we've been developing, you know, some clients and helping them with their, their planning, right? There was no rules. So, you, you know, uh, financial modeling and timeline and, and working on the, the pieces that they need to uh, have in place before the, the application uh, or the licensing phase starts. Now, what do you what are you hearing? Um, what I've heard in New York is that many of the municipalities have opted out, and I know that was rampant in New Jersey because the the regs came out after the opt in opt out date. So many of the municipalities took the cautious approach and opted out until they could see what the regs were, so they know the rules. What are you seeing in New York around that? Yeah, I mean it's it's right around fifty percent that have opted out versus opted in at least for retail right so um i mean i think you know and that's kind of a struggle is even of the opt-ins they're not exactly sure you know what you know what zone is going to be in place um you know how how to even approach that how to set up you know then you know municipal regulations things like that so you know it's a i think it's it's a challenge right now it'll you know it will uh progress obviously and i think you know will become easier but you know that also allows more people to, you know, more competition to, to come in at that point. Yeah, and uh, one of the towns that I talked to uh, uh, like a year ago opted in, and I, from what I heard, it's because they heard early on about what could be a cannabis operation, and I really helped them, you know, un, you know make the decision. Uh, are you seeing more action right now in New York or New Jersey? Uh Honestly, probably New York. Really? Okay. Yeah. What, what do you think's driving that? Because New Jersey seems to be so much closer to actually getting up and running. And New York, the folks I talked to there just seem to be in a state of confusion as to what's going on, trying to decipher the regs and figure out when the door is going to open and for whom. Honestly, I don't really know what's driving that. It just seems to me like the, it almost seems to me like there's just Kind of more entrepreneurship in New York, and maybe that you know kind of stems from proximity to the city. Although you know, not that's not usually the case in most of the state. So I really don't have a good indication of why, but that seems to be the trend right now. You seeing more activity down in the down in the city versus upstate or all over? Or I'm I'm seeing a lot of people who are coming to us saying that they want to do, you know, something in the city. And then a lot of times having a conversation, you know, are you sure about that? Um, but yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> that's, which is, that's going to be, that's going to be a whole other animal, but yeah, it's, that's kind of what we're seeing. Yep. 
So yeah, Connor, the last time you and I were together was late October, I believe, right down at Nikan in Atlantic City. Yes, that sounds about right. Yeah. Nikan had just come back to uh, having physical shows. I think that was the first one. And and that show was, I wouldn't say it was greatly attended, but but for a first show down there, I thought it was the attendance attendance was okay. Um, and I'm sure you spoke to folks after the show, as did I, and I, I've been surprised at New Jersey just seems to be heating up, though they can't seem to stay on schedule. Um, I'm finding much more confusion with the people in New York. The start, stop, the, 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 the recent regs that came out that uh, social equity goes first. And, and I think they're going to go through the same thing we went through in, or in, and are going through in Massachusetts, where yeah. now people are trying to figure out how do you get a social equity applicant that you can have stand in front of you, but that try to extract all the benefit out of it. Mm -hmm. what it, are you two seeing much in the way of the interactions between the SEs and the non-SEs? So, so the, the project I've been working on, they're all trying, just like you said, trying to find a social equity. And uh, which, you know, I've, I've said it before, I think those social equity programs don't really help the social equity uh, uh, people that much, right? They, they, there's always a, pro, a company behind it that's trying to, you know, find a way to bypass the rules and use social equity. Mm -hmm. And yep. I think, you know, it would be much easier if there was a number of licenses just for social equity uh, people and maybe micro loans to help them really uh, be successful versus, you know, what you just said, right? Uh, yep. Companies trying to find social equity. But what I've seen is uh, uh, people trying to optimize the social equity program. Now, didn't New York allocate like the first hundred retail licenses for social equity? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that was the curveball I heard recently. Yeah, it's, it's like 100, 100 to 200 uh, license uh, uh, for people who have been arrested for cannabis, you know, uh, who had some cannabis uh, uh, issues. And uh, they, that's going to be the, the idea that 100 to 200 of them or oh, licenses by this summer will go to people who have been uh, having issue with the uh, cannabis convictions. So, how long does it take from when a state starts to get active till you find that it's beginning for the services you provide, it's beginning to slow down? I mean, I think, you know, there's a, there's a certain point where it's like, okay, we've done our job, you know, these people are open, they're, they're doing well, they're doing their thing. I mean, you know, if I compare it to Massachusetts, it'd be, you know, probably like, I think it took, you know, four or so years for the, that industry, you know, that market to really mature and people kind of to be, you know, on their own. And like you do, you know, what I kind of learned is like, you do see, you have the really, you know, the first movers, the people who right now are, you know, um, you know, trying to get ahead of the curve. And then you have the people who uh, wait, you know, watch what happens, learn from that. And then, you know, come into the market a year after it opens. And those are, you know, kind of, that's, which is kind of another, um, you know, Wait. trough of, 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 yeah, of, of people starting those companies. So, you know, I, four or five years, probably. Really? Okay. Yeah. I, yeah, we usually, we usually involved a year before the market open and, you know, four or five years after. I mean, Ohio was the same thing. Massachusetts was the same thing for sure. Interesting. Rick, I'm almost out of questions from my uh, from. I doubt that's true, <laughs> David. But but here's one thing that, from a Midwestern perspective, oftentimes we think of the Atlantic Coast, the East Coast, as a single unit. When in actuality, with all the different states, each one has their own regs and their own structure. 
How does New York fit into that marketplace? Do you envision yourself as being the most permissive state on the Atlantic coast or are you, does New York's laws look like they might be a little bit less, uh, less uh, tourist friendly than some other East coast states? I mean, I certainly don't think that New York is going to be the, the strictest. Um, also, you know, hopefully, you know, the state learned some things also from, you know, Massachusetts in, you know, being able to, you know, remove a little bit of red tape and expedite things for, you know, owners um, and that type of thing. So I think there's, there's, there's places where it's falling a little bit in the middle, um, you know, on the, uh, on the consumer side, I mean, we, you know, we know right now, like the kind of the illicit market really isn't, uh, you know, nothing's happening or what was the illicit market is now just the, you know, um, the existing market, I guess, right. And I'm hearing, you know, uh, hearing and seeing tons of things about, you know, basically everyone, you know, on the street is just selling openly, nothing's happening, that's not going anywhere. So, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem that there's really going to be any crackdown uh, there, but what will happen is then there'll probably be a shift once um, the actual, you know, adult use market gets up and running. And then, you know, the focus is on, you know, testing and, um, you know, retail experience and product selection and things like that. But um, I think it, I think it falls kind of in the middle of, of a couple of the other uh, Northeast states. And I would not be surprised that the market evolves faster than we think, because if you think about it, you know, New York's going to be in between New Jersey and Maine as far as adult use programs. And I think outside of New Hampshire, right, all those states will have adult use in place in the next you know, 12 to 18 months. So whatever the rules are, they're going to have to adapt very quickly. Otherwise, you know, people are just going to go from one state to the other, and that's not going to help the operators. And on top of that, you know, there's uh, Indian tribes that are now coming on the market in New York, right? There's, I think the Mohawks just opened uh, last week, last week. So I think those, those markets going to evolve pretty, pretty, pretty rapidly. You guys have uh, advice that you give to uh, CFOs and controllers, or I'm, I'm curious what that advice might be or some best practices uh, being that New York is, you know, the strictest in the country as it pertains to money transmitting services, Washington state where I'm at in Seattle's the second strictest in the country uh, with, with regards to those rules and laws. And so it's been really hard for cannabis banking and any kind of electronic transfers, Bitcoin or otherwise. So I'd imagine that there's an uphill battle there when it, uh, you guys are advising clients within the hemp and cannabis space, what are you telling them uh, as it pertains specifically to CFOs and controllers about best practices? What is it that, uh, that you guys are uh, informing them about? Uh, so the first thing we tell all our clients is work on your financial model and your business plan, because any of your partners, right? Uh, the bankers, the insurance, any, everybody's going to want to make sure outside of your investors, they're going to want to see a, a, a financial model. They want to make sure that you, you know what you're getting into and you got to be realistic or conservative. And um, so banking, although everybody thinks it's an issue and it's still an issue, of course, uh, it's, there's more and more solutions, right? There's, there are now banks that are you know, uh, going from one state to the other. And, and I'm sure you guys have talked to Lighthouse Solutions out of Massachusetts and they're looking at other states. And, and so th there are solutions, but they're all gonna wanna know from the CFO, this is what we're doing. This is our plan. And this is what we're trying to execute. The second thing uh, I always tell people is that it's, it's gonna end, cannabis is gonna become a commodity and it's gonna be a battle of quality versus cost. And so make sure as a CFO that you understand your cost structure and how you're going to 
reduce your, your cost of goods month after month, just after year. So you can, you can show your, your partners uh, to the you know, greatest uh, uh, meaning that you, you're ready to execute. Because everybody's talking about sales, but I think cost is going to become the next battle. Right. You have a consulting presence in California, right? But you're based out of New York. That's where your clients and your projects are at. I'm wondering how that business strategy is different in California and existing market versus the emerging markets on the East Coast and what the sales expectations are. A lot of people in New York are anticipating it's going to be the biggest, the best. And yet California is the fifth largest economy in the world. So I guess a two-part question, how is your business strategy different, California versus New York? And what are the sales expectations in each of those spots? Are you expecting more in New York? So we based, we based in New England. We have clients okay. in New York, but we're based in New England. They're out of northern order. Massachusetts. We, we okay. call, down yes. here, we call it Maine. Yes, that's right. That's right. So I have a question for you. Um, for um, either, actually, both of you, but I'll let you decide who jumps in first. Even though Jimmy always tells me the the person asking the question should pick who's going to answer it. But if you were go based upon what you know, what you've seen, if you were going to open up a business from scratch, this, May first, and your choices were New Jersey, New York, or Massachusetts, which state would you want to be in? Oh, <laughs> and not, and I'm not talking about, you know, right today. I'm talking about you're looking three years down the road when yeah. all three states are properly up and running. Which one do you think is going to be the best? But based upon regulatory structure, the number of licenses, the, just the whole construct of the industry, which state do you think is the best place to be? I mean, maybe we can both answer it. But uh, for me personally, I'm going to say New York, right? I think there's a certain kind of allure and draw to that market, which, um, you know, uh, you can, you know, you can tell there certainly are businesses flocking to it, but there's also, you know, a lot of people flocking to that who will not get those businesses up and running. And I think that's going to be harder than people expect, um, which leads me to believe that there might be a little bit less competition than initially expected for what I think will be, you know, the biggest market in the country. Um, and, you know, especially one where, you know, we know, you know, New York is, you know, prices will stay high for a long time. Um, you know, it's, that's, that's the only, really the only state on the East coast that I think, um, some, you know, true potentially, you know, national dominant brands could come out of, um, you know, if we look at where brands come out of, you know, for not even just cannabis, typically they come out of, you know, California and the West coast, or New York, uh, right? So I think that that's you know there's a, a there's to me there's a few things uh, that would make me choose New York over those other two. I think Mass is kind of on the you know on the later side, although it's still a very viable market. Um, and you know then basically picking the other two, it's it's New York for me. But you know, curious to hear what Jack has to say too. No, I, I would agree. You know, uh, bo- uh, both Connor and I, we have a, a good experience in Massachusetts and we know the market pretty well. But I would agree that New York is probably the one within the next three years. I would say on the other side of the bridge, you know, from uh, New York City, that part of New Jersey is probably going to be an interesting part, but it's just because of the market. But if you look at the state of New York itself, you know, from uh, Buffalo and Rochester to New York City, you get 19 million people there. And uh, a lot of trend uh, are being set in New York. So I, I would also pick New York. And I want to come back to what Josh was saying about California also earlier. You know, so we have done minimal work out of uh, uh, California. You know, uh, we have a presence there. 
but the California market has been very difficult for the lack of uh, regulation and the lack of, of being able to establish uh, uh, businesses outside of the people who just came out of the, 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 the market there. And so we, we actually focused on the Midwest and, uh, and, uh, and the East Coast. Uh, you know, for that reason, we had some clients in Hawaii. We had some, you know, we still have some clients in California. But the, you know, uh, Midwest uh, East has been more uh, uh, has, been, has been better for us as far as as long term relationship. Uh, although, you know, we we have some brands coming from you know Nevada to uh, the East Coast and things like this. But uh, um, so I, I hope that, that answers your question, Josh. So, um, Jacques, you, you made a comment a few moments ago about um, um, uh, that operators need to be focused on where their costs are, especially on a long-term basis. Um, so let's go down a little bit of a slippery slope. Do you okay. think interstate commerce is going to happen because of federal decriminal because the feds decrim marijuana, or do you think it could happen before that with um, building upon what's going on with the litigation in federal court in Maine over the caregivers and the out-of-state licensees? Well, so in Maine, the out-of-state licensees is so just so the out-of-state owners could actually have an operation. It's not about right. you know moving products right from Maine to to Massachusetts, for example. Uh, that said, I, I I don't on one on one side i don't i don't i'm not sure anybody any of us should want to have interstate commerce because i don't think the industry is ready for interstate commerce and and a lot of companies are not ready to have huge competition from you know either on quality or, or quantity or price from other companies so it feels to me that we need a few more years to have standards to know you know what you know what uh, how to compare Right. I mean, even the, the name of the, the strains are, although they might be the same between Michigan and Massachusetts, it's not the same plant. Right. It's not the same tack. It's so I think there's a, a lot more work from all of us to get towards standards. So then we can say, OK, now let's start crossing borders and see how we can optimize. Well, the markets are looking to need to get a little bit more mature before we introduce all of these disruptive factors like multi-state yeah. operators flooding a market with something that's grown in a state far, far away and putting the, the cultivators that have invested a lot of money at a disadvantage because yes. they simply are still in the in the bill paying phase and not in the uh, profit making phase. I'm sorry, David, I interrupted you with my my tertiary. Rick, that's quite all right. The the uh, I was just going to ask Cootie and, and Rick, you may want to weigh in on this. Um. Who do you think are going to be the winners and losers in interstate commerce? Who gets hurt the most and who wins the most? Lawyers. Lawyers win the most. <laughs> How yes, about on the, on the licensee side? Oh, okay. More specifically then. Okay. Yes. Uh, well, as far as the licensees go, uh, I do see uh, the Canadians being the biggest uh, financial winners in this whole thing. Remember that first to market men, oftentimes you had to go to the Canadian stock market in order to get financing. Some of the largest multi-state operators still rely heavily on Canadian dollars to fuel their, their, their uh, expansions. Much of the mergers and acquisitions that are announced uh, today through press releases are announced in Canadian dollars. So I really feel like uh, multi-state operators, when they cross over the borders and expand in the way that they will, they'll need that Canadian financing. And that's really ultimately where the profits go. So Connor, what do you think? Who's going to be the winners and losers out of interstate commerce? The big guys or the little guys? 
No, to me, I think the, the, you know, the losers are the, you know, probably the, you know, the cultivators, the small cultivators, right. The people who are going to get that, you know, get the, the kind of the supply taken away by that, um, you know, and probably the ones who fall somewhere in between, you know, the craft growers and the, you know, very large growers, you know, kind of the, the, the medium-sized companies, unfortunately, right. That's probably the casualty. And I think it also will vary state by state. Like I look at some states, you know, I look at, you know, Massachusetts and, um, you know, there's, I, there's still barriers to entry, you know, for example, you know, in the, in the, the liquor industry, right. That keeps prices high. I think, um, and there's, and I know there's states where that's not the case. So I do, I do see, uh, I do see it kind of varying state by state as well. So let me, let me throw out a hypothesis. I'm, I'm curious, um, on the Opus team, what you think about this. Um, my, my belief is that interstate, well, I'll work it backwards. Interstate commerce is going to help independent retailers and indep independent product manufacturers, folks that are making a product, but they're not tethered to a cultivation operation. It is going to crush multi-state operators who have millions and millions invested in indoor grow facilities. And I actually think the canary in the coal mine is IIPR. When interstate commerce comes into play, I think it's going to be a time to short IIPR stock in a big way because they put all the money into financing these huge cultivation facilities. And when interstate commerce comes into play, I've said it many times, the big winner is going to be JetBlue when everybody from the Northeast flies out to California to find their new suppliers. What I think, so I, I, want, your, I want to hear your thoughts on that. And then I want to hear your thoughts on, on another point, which is, um, I, I forget who it, is it Columbia Care that's trying to buy the caregiver group in Maine? Uh, There's a large New York MSO that is that yeah. is a, trying to buy a, um, a caregiver group, a medical operator in Maine. And what's gone yeah. on is they've been told they can't buy them because you have to be a resident of Maine. They've sued yeah. the state. There was a hearing in federal court in the First Circuit, which is out of Boston, I believe on April 7th, and the judges seem to be leaning more toward the operator than to the state. The state's yeah. argument was that the, the this thing called the dormant commerce clause, which has gotten a lot of a lot of discussion in the industry over the past nine months or so, the state argues it doesn't apply to an illegal business, and the um, the operators are arguing yes, it does. The court seemed, from oral arguments, to lean, be leaning in toward that the dormant commerce clause, commerce clause applies. What I see is the big takeaway from that is if the court rules in favor of the uh, the operator, that means the dormant commerce clause, the federal appeals court will have ruled that that in fact does apply. And if that applies, anybody in any state can sue their regulatory body and claim that the regulations are unconstitutional because they don't allow interstate commerce. And I would think interstate commerce will open up within a within a short period of months after that. There's nothing the federal government has ever said other than marijuana is a schedule one drug that you can't have interstate commerce. So the only issue would be you can't truck it across states that are going to find it illegal because they'll seize it. But otherwise, you could be flying weed back and forth between California, Massachusetts, New York, and New Jersey in short order. What do you, what do you, how crazy am I? Uh, I think you're crazy. Okay. Uh, I think you're crazy because, uh, um, so on the one side, uh, 
I think if an operator wants to be in Oklahoma, Michigan, or Maine, they should be able to do it. You know, at the end, uh, it's capitalism. And uh, why, why being afraid that a, a multi-state operator is coming to your state? What they usually do, they bring, you know, uh, better standards and uh, better pay, uh, at least, you know, uh, uh, better practices. On the other side, uh, I think you're also crazy because even if you're correct, I think the federal government will find a way to not have interstate commerce anytime soon, because that would be, you know, they would open a door that they can close. And so they will delay it, you know, by some kind of a, you know, court motion and things like this. So uh, I, I, that, that would be my take. And again, I, you know, I, I'm part of the NCIA facility committee and the facility design committee, and we're working on standards. And I know there's a lot of the groups that are working on standards. I don't think the industry is ready for the big, you know, let's open all the doors because uh, at the end, uh, the little guy is going to get hurt. They're not ready to, you know, be able to sell to, they're not, nobody's ready or most people are not ready to produce at $1.50 a gram. And only uh, people that are well-equipped, they, they have the means to do it, can only do that. The minute we have interstate commerce, everybody is going to have to have high quality for $1.50 a gram or less. And that's the, the you know, in, in Washington state to, you know, uh, the state of New York, some people are going to get hurt. Josh, your head keeps going up and down. You look like you're in agreement with them. You want to jump in, weigh in here? I just think that, uh, you know, when you look at Canada, they're growing around $6 a gram, $1.30 in the U.S. and 15 cents, including landing costs in places like Peru and Colombia. And if you're going to exactly. utilize Mexico and get through when national global legalization is open, you can't compete against 15 cents a gram. You might pay $1.30 if it's good, right? We know that there's bad stuff and decent stuff. You're going to pay more for the decent stuff, but you're never going to pay that $6 up in Canada, yeah. which is why they're coming down here making their acquisitions. So if you don't, uh, I mean, to your point, though, David, people are going to fly to California because no one is going to grow in Florida indoors when you can grow outdoors in California. So some of these MSOs that are dumping money in will write money off just like Aurora did with the billion, just like Canopy did with three billion. And there will be massive amounts of write offs if or when they can do that, because it doesn't make any sense to grow in Florida when there's federal or global legalization. And the price of energy is different in state to state too. Price of energy is tough as well. Yep. Go ahead, David. Yes. The, 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 I think the write-offs are going to be difficult. It's one thing if you're Aurora and you raise the capital and somebody wrote you a check for $4 billion, you spent it and you go, money's gone, I'm sorry. But in this case, they've taken these assets, sold them off to, to um, uh, the, a couple of the investment firms that are out there like IIPR, right. and they're on the hook on long-term leases to IIPR. Yeah. They can't just write it off. They have to make those payments. Are they going to default? If they default, right, IIPR is going to have limited recourse as to how they, come at, they can come after them. They can sue them, though they can't put them in a bankruptcy. But it, it's going to be interesting well, if they can't make those payments. So talking about that, David, actually, what Connor and I also are focusing on is bankruptcy, which doesn't exist, and turnarounds. You may have heard that we've been uh, appointed by the, the court in Massachusetts as the first receiver for a company in Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, for, uh, uh, you know, starting in November. And so receivership is kind of an alternative to bankruptcy. Right. And I think there's going to be more and more of those, you know, we, we're getting ready to, you know, do two or three a year to help, you know, investors and, and any other stakeholders to find a way out uh, from either bad investment or bad operations or, or, or you know, 
errors in operations because it's just the beginning. You know, people invested millions of dollars in indoor grows or retail uh, stores that are just not going anywhere. I, I had not heard that you guys had been appointed as um, as receivers, but congratulations. That's a that's a big feat. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's well, a, there's a lot of Washington State too. that just happened here in Washington where there is a, a really great um, veteran owned uh, farm here called Boggy Boone. And he worked his tail off to get this brand where it is. And then through um, he got an investor, didn't have an attorney read it, I'm guessing, didn't do his due diligence, signed it. And then when his sales or whatever was in the, the fine print didn't uh, work out, that investor came in, took receivership, yeah. and now he's completely out. Still has yeah. his shares, has no board, has no yeah. job. Uh, yeah. And so it's you're going to see that happen a lot more, a lot more consolidation, yeah. a lot more receivership. Yeah. Uh, count on and, and 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 anybody who's starting to feel that heat should reach out to any of us here you know more corner and i of course but anybody of us here <laughs> to try to find a solution because i mean it's business right so there's a solution out you don't have to go to the extreme solution and the only the earlier you talk the earlier you're going to find uh, a solution most of the time you know no lenders wants to foreclose on any companies whatever the industry is and unless it's there um it's their ammo. And then if that's the case, you know, the, the, the borrower should have probably found out early on. But anyway, to go, going back to our conversation, I think there's going to be more, more companies that are suffering from the change in the industries and they're not ready for it. Mm -hmm. I, I, my prediction is that we're going to, Massachusetts this year is the year we're going to start to see people go out of business. We've got, uh, we, there's rumors, I, I won't point out where because I, I can't substantiate them, but there's rumors of certain municipalities that have packed in retailers that have retailers that are doing under $5,000 a day of revenue and, and wow. barely hanging on. Um, Here in yeah. Michigan in 2022, we call this the year of great reckoning uh, because of exactly that, David. Our, our prices dropped out to about $153 retail per ounce. And for many companies that initiated a business model that had a target of $300 or $400 an ounce, that's just a devastating blow that I just don't know how you come back from. That's crazy right. prices. I just, I, in Washington state, I pay on average for, uh, you know, mids for an ounce for 28 grams. I'm paying no more than a hundred bucks. And when, and when on Fridays, when it's 30% off, um, for everybody, not just industry discounts, I'm paying for an ounce under $50. I was just in Nevada and their flowers, not that great, limited license state, incredibly expensive. Um, and there's not that many stores. So on 420 for the last five years, I go to 20 stores on 420 to get a good gauge of what the industry does. I can do that. I can go to 20 stores because they're so close together. I can go to 20 stores, spend all of that time and be out in under four hours and 20 minutes. In Nevada, it took me three hours to visit 10 stores to get that same kind of idea. So they're incredibly spread out. They're all over the place. They're not on the strip and they're incredibly expensive. So, um, you know, again, limited license state, you're probably going to be there, but you have to have better quality in a place like Washington or Oregon that has $19 ounces, incredibly competitive. I don't even want to know what's going to happen in Oklahoma where there's 7,500 licenses. That is going to oh, yeah. be a nightmare of foreclosure, or not foreclosures, but um, a yeah. bank, a bank, not even bankruptcies. What am I trying to say? Just failures. <laughs> failures. Straight up. All right. So it sounds like I'm standing here alone in an aisle believing that um, interstate commerce is going to help the little guy and hurt the big guy. Connie, you haven't really weighed in too much on that. What you have, you have a, what's your view? Well, I mean, I mean, a couple, couple things that I think um, 
are happening and actually almost going, you know, back to the last conversation, but something that I was seeing a couple of years ago and you probably saw as well as people, you know, coming to coming to me with, you know, project, you know, revenue projections that were out of this world. And, you know, for at that point, a couple of years ago, so now they're, you know, clearly way off and people raise money based on those. So, um, you know, I'm sure there's going to be issues there, but um, I mean, I would, you know, I see, you know, I definitely see, you know, I, I definitely agree actually with you, David, that, you know, there's so much capital tied up in, you know, these, you know, huge production facilities that are now, you know, you know, they, that took, you know, years to build and are now, you know, almost, you know, close to being obsolete and that there's, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely a huge risk there for the people who are going to be, you know, holding the bag on those. Um, and I, you know, actually, I think it'll get there eventually. I don't think the timeline is that quick, right? I think, you know, some of them will have had enough success before then where, you know, it doesn't quite matter um, because, you know, this industry has failed to do anything quickly uh, ever in the past. So I think, you know, the probably, you know, all the red tape will slow things down long enough for some of them to survive and be all right. But yeah, there's, you know, there's certainly, uh, a lot of capital that's, you know, tied up or still going to be tied up in, you know, these, you know, hugely expensive, right. You know, obviously right now, everything is extremely expensive to build. Uh, and at some point may not have uh, a whole lot of value, but, you know, that's what I said, you know, I think some States will do a better job, you know, protecting that and some will not. Um... Cool. David, what's your thought about protecting it in the first place? Because as we talked about with the Dormer Clause, it, it, it seems like states don't have the opportunity to opt they, out of that. It seems like they, that's a federal can't. reg. So the only one that can that has any control over that is Congress. And that was made clear in the oral arguments earlier this month on the main case. The judge pointed out that that's reserved for Congress. It's not reserved for anybody else. I know, um, uh, now I, I'm, I can't think of it. I think it's Andrew Klein. And and Shaleen Title published a series of articles a few months ago extolling that if Congress is going to legalize marijuana, they need to suspend the dormant commerce clause. I'm on the exact opposite side of the moon from them. I think the dormant commerce clause, when that comes into play and we can have interstate commerce, I think it's going to be a windfall for social equity. Because now you're talking about the people who know the plant. Many of them have contacts in other states. No, have known before legalization, new people who were growing it um, illegally. And I think that they're going to be the ones that are going to do the best because they understand the plant. They'll find out where to get it from licensed growers. They'll import it and they're going to watch their costs go down while I think they'll be the ones who will be able to compete as the market prices go down. The folks that have these huge indoor cultivation operations or they've sold them off and they're on long-term leases, their long-term production costs are locked in. I don't see how they're going to drop them. Now, some of those, those sale leaseback arrangements too come with annually escalating interest rates as well. So you're looking at someone who's made a 20-year commitment with significant financial penalties for early, early extraction. And you're it's impossible to see how they can manage 20 years out, whether there's interstate commerce or not. I mean, some of those were just bad business deals. Being first to market in the industry normally is an advantage, but in our industry, it meant that you really had to sell your soul to some devil in order to get financing because very few people were offering it. I mean, is that a mischaracterization or is that what you think is actually going on? I happen to agree with you on that. I think it was Jacques just made a, mo a comment a moment ago about, you know, or maybe it was Connor about the 
projections. Some companies have projections that they just keep going up, up, up. I watched companies that I was, I'm absolutely certain to this day are in a, in a localized market worth 50 million that will have eight stores. And one of them would be pitching, yeah, we're going we're gonna to be doing 35 million, I'm sorry, 17 million the first year, and we'll be up to 35 million within three years. And the municipalities just bought into it and said, you're the one we want. It became a contest of who could make the biggest promise without any sort of a guarantee. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't that long ago when Weed Maps came out with a $420 million valuation, like an arbitrary number. And they're like, hey, this is what we're at. So it, it doesn't surprise me that people are thinking that they're going to get $3,000 a pound in New York for infinity or uh, for, for, you know, for the rest of the, the, their, their life. Right. Um, you guys mentioned dormant commerce clause. You mentioned that a couple of times for the yep. audience who isn't aware of the dormant commerce clause. What is it? So the Commerce Clause is part of the U.S. Constitution, and the Commerce Clause states, you're going to wish you hadn't asked this question, Josh. Give me about two minutes into it. Oh boy! So the Commerce Clause states that the states, the individual states cannot restrict interstate trade between them. That right is reserved exclusively for Congress. Now, what they can do are things like, say, um, if you're going to sell this kind of a product in our state, it has to have this sort of packaging and this sort of testing. Now, if the other states don't have that packaging and other manufacturers in other states don't have that packaging or testing, they may not be able to sell into that state. But if they adjust their testing and packaging, they have access to the market. That's the basis of the Commerce Clause. Where it really gets interesting, and Jimmy loves it when I tell this story, in 1947, I think it was, there was a, a farmer in Ohio named Roscoe Filburn, and the the Department of Agriculture, I believe it was, was giving out allotments as to how much wheat you could grow. He didn't care. He grew way more wheat than he was supposed to grow, like grain cars full. It was a huge amount of wheat. It wound its way all the way up. And when we got to the Supreme Court, he said, uh, I wasn't going to sell that wheat in the open market. I was going to use it for my cattle and my personal consumption. Whereupon the court decided, if you want to be cute, we'll be cute. Well, you may not have wanted to sell it in the open market, but if you're going to have that much wheat and you're going to need that much wheat by not buying it on the open market, you're going to impact the national markets because you're a customer who's that big who won't be buying it. And therefore, the Commerce Clause applies to your wheat. And Congress has the right to, to regulate how much you grow, even if you didn't plan on selling it. Now, if we all think back a year, there was a really big brouhaha when Conservative Justice Clarence Thomas, Thomas of the Supreme Court issued a dissenting opinion, and he said something about to the effect that the federal government has been so inconsistent with what it's doing around marijuana that the continued criminalization may be unconstitutional, and it may be time to look at this again because we haven't looked at it since 2005. Now, what he was talking about in 2005 was Butte County sheriffs in California with the DEA raided a woman's home named Angel Rage. Angel had cancer and she needed marijuana for medical purposes. It was well-documented and she had six plants. So she whips out all of her letters and she shows them that these guys have come in and the sheriffs look at it and go, huh, pretty good, we're fine. And they left. The DEA agent said, we don't care about your letters and they confiscated her six plants. And that case got chased all the way up through the federal system with the, the, the courts eventually saying, it doesn't matter that you only had six plants. It doesn't matter you weren't going to sell it. It doesn't matter that it was only for your personal consumption. 
or for your medical use. It's illegal and the Commerce Clause relying on this Roscoe Filburn case from 1947 means that even if you weren't gonna transfer it over state lines, the federal government has oversight of it. So that's what this whole thing about the Commerce Clause is. Now, the Commerce, um, uh, Rob Mikos, who we had on the Green Rush back on, I think it was November 5th, is a Vanderbilt law professor. And last year he wrote a paper last summer that was published in the BU Law Journal. It's a phenomenal paper. And it takes a really deep dive into whether the, the dormant commerce clause, as they call it, um, applies to the cannabis sector. And his arguments, which I'm not an attorney or a constitutional scholar, but I found them pretty compelling. He argues effectively that the federal government in what they're allowing the states to do with marijuana has never said you can't trade between states. The states just assume that. So Massachusetts, if you happen to be out in Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard and you're, grow and you're gonna have weed out there, you actually have to test it yourself because the state doesn't believe you can put it on a boat and transfer it over the waters because the waters are federal. The states may all be wrong. And what we're really gonna find out about that is in Maine on this case where the caregivers are, are wanna sell and the state saying, if you're not a resident, you can't buy it. And if that case comes down in favor of the operator, it means that a federal court has ruled that the Commerce Clause applies even to the marijuana sector. And that now means automatically that every state that restricts purchases to only in-state suppliers is unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. And I think that's gonna be the issue that's gonna turn the, it's gonna quietly turn the, issue, the industry on its head. And I wouldn't be surprised if we have interstate commerce before we have federal decriminalization brought on by the courts. Well, I can tell you that there are quite a few people in federal jail right now for transporting cannabis across state lines. Uh, so it's not just something that the states have assumed. It's actually something that the feds have enforced. Yeah, but those people to... don't have licenses, right? Well, if, you, if you have a medical license baked into the federal budget is this thing called the Rohrabacher Amendment. It's been there since 2014, and it explicitly states the Department of Justice is prohibited from expending federal resources to go after a medical operator who's in compliance with their state laws. So if somebody sues the state, gets the regulations overturned, so it allows for interstate commerce and they're importing it for medical purposes, the feds can't touch them. And that one, that one's already been tested on the West Coast and, and, the, and won. So I, I think that could be, that's, that's and, and Jocks, I may be absolutely, totally bat crazy nuts, but I believe that's where it's gonna go. And I'd be willing to bet you it, dinner of your choice to either way we'll see where it ends up you know what either way let's have dinner win-win <laughs> yeah no that works out pretty well i have a hard time envisioning a situation where we have uh, unrestricted interstate commerce and cannabis prior to federal legalization uh I, regardless of what type of legal justification we might find for that I just feel like states and their cooperation is, is going to be hesitant. We've even seen states seizing uh, shipments of money from legal cannabis industries from one to the other, or even shipments of hemp, which aren't supposed to be uh, subject to those type of seizures any longer. We still see them taking place like that. David? Yeah, but remember, the seizures of hemp, the, the, um, I, the feds came down and said to the states, you can't seize hemp if it's being transported through your state. You don't, it just because it's illegal in your state, the farm bill made it legal. And I think it, I think it may have been Nebraska or, or Idaho that was seizing it. And they told him to stop. And this past week, the feds had to give all that money back. They get back over a million dollars in return for 
the operator agreeing to drop the lawsuit against the feds and the operator is keeping the lawsuit against the local sheriff. Um, for sure, you know, we're talking about the, all those big states or those new markets coming up. I mean, for sure, New York, New Jersey, you know, and, uh, and all the other states, you know, Ohio and Connecticut, and, you know, are all, all going to continue to expand. There's going to be more states in, a, in the next couple of years. It might also change the perspective for, at the federal level, because once you have, what, 19 million people plus how many in New Jersey, Right, you got 25 more, 25 million more people to get access to legal cannabis, and uh, almost the uh, half of the East Coast would have it. It's probably going to also uh, put some pressure at the federal level to find solutions because otherwise, each state and each operators and each um, each cons- consumer is going to find their own solutions. Yeah, look, I'll let you in a secret. If anybody here is interested in running for public office, just change your name to cannabis. Because cannabis has been way more popular the last few cycles than any elected official. That is so insightful. Yeah. Rick, cannabis. That might be my future. I think that's the direction I'm going to head in. I'm Um, I'm going to pass. I'm going to pass on being elected anywhere. (laughs) You have a cool name already, Jacques. So don't change that at all. Forget about it. Yeah. But, you know, if I run for president, they're going to ask where I'm born. And then that's going to turn sad. That's going to turn bad. So I'll pass. Well, what, a, what an uh, exciting uh, conversation we've had here. We're down to about the last 10 minutes of the program time here. And before we start with the, uh, giving opportunity to tell everyone how to reach out to you, Connor, Jacques, your, your outlook for New York State, you seem to be so involved in that state. We're optimistic, not pessimistic about those possibilities, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's going to, I mean, there's, there's going to be so many in the way it's set up, right, you know, where it's not just you know, only big companies, things like that. I mean, there's there's going to be so many people who, you know, are now interested and in, who have never had the chance to get into an industry like this are going to be doing so. Um, and some of them will have a lot of success. Um, the people who do it right and the people who, um, you know, are able to work through everything that they need to work through, um, you know, really have some some huge potential. So yeah, certainly optimism uh, in New York and, you know, we're, we're doing everything we can to, to help those entrepreneurs and, um, you know, people start those businesses. Jacques, you share that that sentiment? Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, Connor and I, we've been partner for a long, long time and now, and uh, we, we're always on the same page for, you know, our cannabis clients and our outlook. So absolutely. So Josh, this is a time for us to just wrap up with some final thoughts about the, the entirety of the show today. You and I have been around for a couple of different guests. Every one of them's brought something different to the conversation and it's been a lot of fun. What, what kind of uh, thoughts would you like to leave the audience with today? Uh, I think New York um, is is an exciting place. The Northeast is exciting. And so when you're looking at kind of these boring old West Coast states that have been around and, and all the excitement towards the Northeast, I think the focus is is uh, is New York. And, you know, like the question I alluded to earlier with with California being the fifth largest economy in the world, potentially having um you know, a, a domestic rival in New York on the opposite coast could provide for a really interesting East Coast, West Coast atmosphere of cannabis. And so I'm, I'm cool with cannabis being coast to coast. Well, they coast to coast to coast, because don't forget, Michigan is the best coast. OK, you got the east, <laughs> you got the west and then you got the best. No sharks. That's it. David, uh, anything you'd like to leave the audience with before we start wrapping things up? 
No, I, I think I've probably overtalked myself today. So I, I will leave it at that. <laughs> That's why we only gave you the second hour. No, no, you're, <laughs> I appreciate your contribution today and you're always fun to talk to. Jacques, Connor, how can people find out more about your particular company and reach out to you if they have questions about Opus Consulting? So uh, best way, uh, opuscg.com um, or find either of us on LinkedIn. Um, right. and Jackson Tucci. Yeah. Fantastic. And David, any uh, any any type of direction you'd like to give people that might want to contact sure. you and hear more yep. about what you have to say? Yeah, I have. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, David Rabinovich or canaventurelabs.com is uh, you can find me in there and get in touch with me. I do a lot on hoping helping folks who are um, with some strategic planning issues, um, developing financial models that that help raise money. Um, and, uh, and a tremendous amount of advisory services for people on the social equity side of things. David, you have a, a pretty good podcast history too. Are you still doing any broadcasts currently? I am not. Not, uh, not since my retirement from PCM. I just come back when Jimmy calls me on. So you're available is what I hear then, right? Okay. Well, I, available with some caveats. Right now I'm working, we work, I've got a pretty Blake Mensing, who's a well-known attorney in Massachusetts, and I put together a social equity team of, uh, right now we've got six SEs, and we're looking to open up a retail store in Boston right across the street from South Station, which is the busiest commuter hub in all of New England. So we yeah, think yeah. that's going to be a flagship store. Uh, we're working on a couple of other projects. I'm working with a home delivery operator and some technology folks, uh, helping a beverage company that wants to get launched without having to go through all of the hassle of uh, the licensing. So I'm pairing them up with another beverage company who can produce their product for them. So I, I got my fingers in a lot of pies, but right now there's the, uh, we got the retail store and some of the advisory work that keeps me pretty busy and the modeling that I'm doing for people in New Jersey and New York. So available, but expensive. All right, I get you, all right. <laughs> Your time costs. Yeah. Available, but affordable. <laughs> yeah. That's that's why David Connor and I, you know, we, we get along well because we have the same way of thinking, you know, because Connor and I, we also, you know, open our own store. When was that? Five, six months ago now? It's a store called Stage. And uh, it keeps us, you know, closer, you know, to the industry on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Where, where can we find Stage? Where's that at? First one is in Portland, Maine. It's a, it's a, a music theme cannabis store. We are creating a new customer experience. You know, I, I, Rick, I, I always enjoy being in the company of Jocks and, and Connor. And I typically, you know, if I bump into Connor at a show, it usually means it's going to be about 10 or 15 minutes of us just trying to say hello. Um, they, <laughs> they tend to be, while, while we, we do cross paths, they tend to be very knowledgeable guys. They know what they're doing and, and they're more down to earth than the folks that are giving out advice, but don't get their hands dirty, haven't had a license haven't tried to slug it out with municipalities and really been in the trenches type thing and had their own capital at risk. Very few Thank consultants you. actually have a retail store open. And that is an experience that you just have to have in order to be able to properly yeah. advise people on, on how to right. do that for themselves. Yep. 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 Josh, leave us with some wonderful thoughts about how people can get a hold of you in Washington state, sir. Washington State, yeah. Uh, you guys want to invest in this petri dish experiment? Uh, you can look me up, um, Josh at thetalkinghedge.com. That's also my podcast. And then if you guys are interested in pot stocks, 
You can download the Tor Alerts app. It'll notify you when to buy and sell pot stocks. Are you not a member of the Seattle Super Chronics? I thought you were a basketball kind of guy. You have that kind of a build to you. Yeah, I mean, the Seattle Super Chronics is, is what I started, um, but they, they started that Class C felony right after I launched that in 2015. So the, the cafe that was going to be had pivoted to catering and event planning, which pivoted to consulting. So I still do consulting under the Seattle Super Chronics name, but my day job most of the time is now working with a hedge fund to put together pot stock portfolios. That is fantastic. Well, our producer today was Isabel Turner, of course, our engineer, Dan French. I'm Rick Thompson. I'm the executive director of the normal chapter here in the state of Michigan. I'm also involved in the Cannabis Caucus for the Michigan Democratic Party and the Cannabis Freedom Coalition. It's just been a wonderful day guest hosting the Green Rush Business of Cannabis. Thanks, Josh, for co-hosting with me. I certainly yeah. appreciate it. Thank you, Rick. What a great Thank show. You. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you. With that, we're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. It's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.